All right, we're going to dig into Ephesians. I have more notes than usual, so I maybe do a little bit of reading. But but let me set the stage for Ephesians real quick for you. I, I don't know um, how much Pastor Lynn has done this, but Ephesians is most likely a book that was written while Paul is in prison. So he's chained up in this, this cell, probably has a guard there close by to him. At the same time, um, approximately, he, he wrote the books of Colossians and Philemon. And so Paul is writing these. Um, he's writing the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. A very specific church he's writing this letter to. Um, on his second missionary journey, as Paul was traveling around the area, planting churches, doing gospel work, he went to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla. You can read about this in Acts. But he didn't stay there very long because there was a need in Jerusalem. So he showed up in town, um, began to minister a little bit, but they needed him in Jerusalem. He took off and headed to Jerusalem. But then he took a third missionary journey. And on that third missionary journey, uh, we're told in Acts 19 that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. Starting, getting the church started, getting the church um, to lay a foundation of faith and ministering among the people for, for three years. And, and as you can imagine, as a pastor in this town in Ephesus, Paul developed close relationships in that time. Paul invested his life, got to know the people. And so he really was bonded to the people of Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus. So this is how he's writing. He's writing to loved ones. He's writing to a church that he deeply, deeply cares about. And as you guys have studied for the last few weeks, as Pastor Lynn has been flying through like 14 verses, as you've been learning about what, what there is in Christ and salvation and what there is to us who believe the benefits of salvation, the blessings that we as believers have in Jesus Christ, our personal inheritance you talked about. That's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, have given to us salvation and life. You've been reading about these deep, deep theological truths. And it's all about this. It's all about knowing God. But, but not a head knowledge. Not, not a, a list of facts. Not like how I used to study for school. Study just enough to ace the test and forget about it the next day. That's not what's going on here. This is not written for information. The Bible in Ephesians, as we're talking tonight, is not written for information. It's written for transformation. Not just to know with the head, but to know with our lives and with our hearts. Years and years ago, I read a study. Um, somebody had polled people, uh, a, a big sample of Christians, and asked them this simple question. When was the last time you experienced God? You go to a church, you say you're a Christian. When, is, when, when have you really experienced God? And the researchers found something very interesting. It was something like 73% of the people that were polled in this particular survey coming saying, I'm a believer, I go to church. 73% of the people said, I don't know if I ever experienced God. And I read that as a young man in ministry, and, and, and I was baffled thinking, you go to church, you call yourself a believer, but you don't experience God? You have the scriptures like a love letter written to you. God is speaking his will and his purpose for our lives. And, and, and yet you could possibly go through those motions and not experience him. 
And so my heart tonight, I think what you'll see in the scriptures tonight as we look, is very simply that the Bible is not written just to get our heads full and to miss the heart. God wants us to know him. He wants us to encounter him. Not just theological conversations, not just talk about theories, but to get to know the living God. And that's our prayer tonight. And so... Before we even dig into Ephesians, I want to sort of set the tone for something we're going to see real quickly. Um, Imagine this. Back in the day of Ephesus, Paul has learned about the people of Ephesus. He's sitting in a jail cell and and he gets these reports. People are coming to him. Friends and people who have been on other trips to Ephesus, they're coming by the, the prison and they're giving him updates. Things that are going on in Ephesus. And Paul's heart is really encouraged. And he sits down to write them a letter to, to tell them uh, a lot of things, but to, to partly just say, I love you, I care for you, I'm so proud of you. So imagine you're one of those people. You're a recipient. And let's just put it in today's context. Um, you're going to receive a letter from Billy Graham. And Billy Graham is going to give you encouragement in two specific areas. He's going to say, I'm proud of you because of this and this, just by way of discussion, and you guys start raising your hand or whatever, what do you want to hear from Billy Graham? What would you hope to hear if Billy Graham was writing you a letter saying, I'm proud of you because, what would you want him to say, I'm proud of you because of this? Spiritual growth. Okay, because of your spiritual growth. What else? You can shout them out if you want to right now. Or not. <laughs> Either way, you choose. What would you want Billy Graham to say? I'm so proud of you because of this. Because you chose to walk with the Lord. Because your service. Your passion. You spread the word. You worship. You. Okay, the fruit. Is that what you said? Okay, all these are right on. Let's let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And Paul does this exact thing. And I, I think almost all of what you talked about would be encompassed in, in what Paul is going to admonish and encourage these believers about. Verse 15, Paul starts out saying this. For this reason. Now, what does that mean? That means you have to understand, you know, what you guys have been talking about for the first 14 verses. For this reason, for the blessings of the inheritance that you have in Christ because of your salvation. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. There's the two things that Paul calls and and, and is proud of the church at Ephesus, the people of Ephesus. He says this, I am proud of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. That's how he begins this letter. I want you to know ones that I love so dearly. Here's what I'm so proud of you because of. Now listen to this. Your faith in the Lord Jesus. Not because you know a lot about him. Not because you've memorized a lot of scriptures. Not because whatever. But, But first and foundationally and foremost, I'm so proud of you because of your faith. And he's simply saying here, you believe. You're not trusting in yourself. You're not trying to work hard to earn something for yourself. You get it. You understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. He is Lord and you are not. 
So Paul says, I want you to, I want you to understand I'm so proud of you. He's hearing reports over and over again of, of these people in Ephesus who are living out lives of faith. And Paul says, I'm proud of you that you're living by faith. You're walking, trusting God every step of the way. And he says, I'm also proud of you because of your love for each other. Do you remember in John where Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. The whole world's going to know that you're my disciples because of the way that you love each other. By the special relationships that are formed in the family of God, the community of faith, that by your love for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. They'll be able to see that. It's evident. Verse 16, he says this. He's he's proud of them, whatever, because of their faith and their love for the saints. Verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I've not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you, making mention of you in my prayers. So so here you may have a view of Paul that, that, that could be a lot of things. Theologian. One of the, the authors of the New Testament books and writing all this stuff. And you can have all these ideas. But here, I want you to just simply understand this. The pastor heart of Paul. And he's just simply saying this. I love you. I think about you often. I pray for you. I've not stopped giving thanks for you. I'm so excited about what God is doing in your life. And you may not think this is the most important verse in this passage and, and maybe that I could just skip over it. But, but can I just ask you a question? This is a heart check question, not like a raise your hand and get a microphone. Do you ever get just thrilled at the work of God in someone else? Do you have a heart that, that really does rejoice when others rejoice? You see, the, the reality is there is no place in the church of Jesus Christ for jealousy and envy and territorialism. But, but Paul here is showing us he has a heart to see people, all people, but, but, but those that he loves dearly here, to see them grow in the, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in the service. And, 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 and there's, it's not a small thing. I want us to get Paul is proud, Paul is excited, and it's not for selfish motivations. It's because he sees what God is doing in other people's lives. One of my very favorite parts of our whole entire work week here at Cornerstone uh, happened this morning. Every Tuesday morning, our staff gets together at nine o'clock and, and we just have a time that, that we just sort of call it. It's our God time, our celebration time. And the staff just goes around and shares story after story after story. Of, Here's what God is doing at Cornerstone. Here's what God's doing within the ministry that, that I'm blessed to lead. And, and we just take 10 minutes, whatever, and, and just, just share story after story. And I wish all of you could sit in that room and just get a glimpse. Just get a glimpse of what's going on. And, and get a glimpse, because you may be sitting here thinking, that is a big wedding cake. What in the world do we need that big of a wedding cake? But if you could just hear the stories of marriages that are being rescued in the midst of this marriage series. People that God, God's reconciling and bringing back together. If you, if you begin to hear the stories of, of what, how God is working in husbands and, and wives' hearts, you would say, well, fill this place up with big cardboard wedding cakes. I don't care. It's worth it. If that's what it takes to reach someone, 
And we get to hear stories of what God is doing in the children's ministry and down this hallway in our classrooms and in some of your guys' living rooms for, in the small groups. And, 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 and we just celebrate. And, and maybe that's not something that, that I do great or we always do great as a church, but, but there's that time and there are those times where we need to just pause and just thank God for the work that he's doing among us. And that's what Paul does here. He just says, I, but he does the opposite. He doesn't have to take time. He says, I never stop giving thanks for what's going on. Verse 17. His heart of celebration does this. It moves into prayers for the saints. Yeah. I hate to derail you, but can you go into saints a little bit? I mean, sure. because the term has been kind of yeah. taken a life of their own. Its own. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's anything mystical or anything that, that Paul means when he says saints. I believe all he is referring to are those who are followers of Jesus Christ, believers in Christ. He's saying you're a saint. You may not always act like it, but you're a saint. Not because of your activity, not because of your actions, but because of the position and the standing that you have by faith in Jesus Christ. It's like you, you become a saint by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul refers to uh, believers as believers. He refers to believers as children of God. He refers to believers as, as saints. And so it's, it's just simply that. Nothing, nothing other than that going on there. Verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So Paul goes into a prayer. He goes into a prayer that he's, he's as a pastor, crying out and begging God for these things. And this is what he simply says. He, he asks God, he prays to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ that, that God would give to the church at Ephesus, the, the Christians there the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. What does that mean? That, that last part of that verse, what does it mean to know him better? Any ideas? What'd you say? Have a relationship? Yeah, what else? Spend time in the word? What does it mean to know him better? How do we get to know him better? Through prayer? Revelation of... Uh work in his life okay yeah. you get to know his character his personality yeah. like uh when you come across things in life you will know this is god's personality this is god's heart towards yeah. me yeah yeah to come to know him better last year um as, as part of one of kate's make a wish kind of things that we were doing i got to meet okay you're going to be really jealous uh, when i tell you this i got to meet the jonas brothers so the way I say it now, because I have a picture to prove it, I know the Jonas Brothers. So I, just, I know the Jonas Brothers. You don't, I do. I have a picture to prove it. But the truth is, I don't really know the Jonas Brothers, right? I mean, a, a lot of us in here, we know who they are. We know about them. I've, in fact, met them, touched them, got a picture with them. Uh, so I know the Jonas Brothers on that level, but I don't really know them. So absolutely, when Paul says, my prayer is that you may come to know him better. It's not just know about God. It's experiential. It's relational. It's these things. It's to know the character and to understand who he is. But, but let's just break this verse down just a little bit because a couple things I think are so interesting. Number one is this. He says, I'm, I'm asking that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. So flip to John chapter 14. 
And, and let's see what Jesus has to say about the work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, and we'll start reading in verse um, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit's a counselor who teaches you all things and reminds you of everything I have said to you. Flip two chapters over to John chapter 16. John writes in chapter 16, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, a lot of people say that the spirit of wisdom and revelation means a lot of different things. But, but here's one thing we know for sure that it means. That there is an importance in the order of wisdom and revelation. I don't think it's by accident that it's wisdom and revelation in that order. Because there's scriptures that say things like this. Don't, we won't turn there. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. There is wisdom God, open my eyes that I may see. And there's revelation. Wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 73. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Understanding, wisdom, to learn your commands. So, so we may not know all the implications of what Paul talks about in the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but we know this for fact. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is the Holy Spirit of God at work in our lives to help us understand the truths of God, to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us, to lead us, to counsel us in the ways that we should live and to know what God would want us to know. So Paul's prayer is that for this Ephesians, not to just know about Jesus, his his prayer, and I believe Paul's prayer for you tonight, for me tonight, is not just to know about Jesus. Not just to know about the ways of God, but to know God. And to know Jesus. Uh, Throughout Scripture, in the Greek, the word for knowledge that is used, or to know, is gnosis in the Greek. It's very simple. G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis. Here, Paul flips it and uses this word epigenosis. And and it's not talking about just a head knowledge. It's talking about an experiential, a better, a deeper, a fuller understanding. That it gets inside of us. And we understand who he is. Turn to James chapter 1. I feel like I'm making you do a Bible sword drill. I'm sorry. It's sort of a test. James chapter 1. If it helps, in my Bible, it's page 1004. And as you're turning there, just let me ask you this. We're we're talking about knowing God. We're talking about experiencing God. We're talking about wisdom to understand. And and maybe you're here tonight and and you're like, yeah, I'm struggling in that because I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm at this point in life. I'm in this situation. I'm in this relationship. I have this thing going on at work or in my home. 
I don't know what to do. And this whole talk about knowledge and and knowing God and all that kind of stuff, that's all well and good, but I've got a dilemma. I've got a situation and I need to know now. James chapter 1 verse 5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom, here's the simple admonition of Scripture. If you lack wisdom, ask. Ask God to give you wisdom. Ask God to help. Ask God to show you the way. Pray for it. Beg God to reveal it to you. But, But here's what we have to understand. God is not asking you to do it on your own. He's not saying, come up with the answers. You should be smart enough. You should know enough by now. He's saying, no, don't be independent and try to figure it out on your own. He's saying, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. Be dependent. Realize your need. Ask of God. Pray that the Holy Spirit of God will lead you and give you wisdom and revelation to understand, to know, to have the insight that you need. Turn one more place to turn, and then we'll take a little break. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you were around the mine last semester, you know that uh, 1 Corinthians was the topic of study. And, and quite a bit of time was, was given to worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, right? A lot of you remember that. It was a discussion on how do you know the difference and worldly wisdom is this and godly wisdom is this. And, and this passage was studied last semester here. And 1 Corinthians 2, verse, we'll start in verse 9. I'll read a few different passages. Um, it is written... No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among man knows the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to anyone's judgment for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But listen to this. But we have, those of us who are believers, we have the mind of Christ. Do you understand the promise that is in Scripture there that through the Holy Spirit we have the revelation of God to us. We have the mind of Christ. We have the knowledge that we need. But here's the problem, and here's my warning. And here's where we mess up, I think. If I go back to when I'm 18 years old, senior in high school, I had been a Christian for almost all of my life, grew up in the church, knew, um, knew about God, knew, or knew God, followed Him. But it came that point in life where I needed to take the next step into the next season of life. And I begin to pray, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to be when I grow up? Pray, 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 pray. Just 
didn't really feel like God was speaking. Um, got to college, uh, freshman year of college, praying, okay, God, uh, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to major in? What do you want me to be when I grow up? I still ask that question today. What am I supposed to be when I grow up? Um, but, but I was praying this and, and just felt like God was silent. Just felt God wasn't telling me what I needed to hear. Sophomore year of college, same thing. Only problem is sophomore year of college, they say, you need to declare a major like, what are you going to do? Like, I don't know. So they finally, like the end of sophomore year, they said, you have to decide something. And I was like, flip a coin. What's the easiest? Psychology? Okay. The whole time praying, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my life? Where do you want me to study? What kind of job do you want me to have? It was all about doing and action and activity. I graduated college with a degree in psychology having no earthly idea what I would do with my life. And finally God began to work in my heart to say, all this while you've been saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? God, I want to know a plan. And God got through my thick head finally and said, I want you to know me. I want you to be more concerned with knowing me than knowing the plan for me. I want you to be more focused on intimacy and a relationship with me than some destination of of where you're going to be. And and here's the warning that I want to give to you. When we hear things like this about wisdom, when we hear things like like God wants us to, to know Him, that we may know Him better, we somehow have a switch in our mind that goes to action where we're like, I need to know what to do, I need to know a plan, I need to know, like, if I do this, then this will happen, then this will happen. And we want this step-by-step GPS-type directions that God would just be audible and tell us and let us know. But here's what God wants. Intimacy. He wants us to know Him. As a father, I mean the perfect father that you could possibly imagine. As a father loves and knows and takes care of his children, He wants us to know Him in His provision. Apart from any earthly relationship that we may have that that we would project upon him because we've had bad experiences with dads or whatever he wants us to know him as a perfect father loving and caring for us and so the, the admonition to know him better it's not know a plan it's not get the answer for that thing i'm asking for right now that's the most important thing it's first and foremost this to experience him an invitation to know him better is to experience Him. I love how Paul describes this in verse 18 of Ephesians. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Let's talk about that for a minute. So I'm going to stop. If you have questions about anything we've We've covered in the last few minutes, ask that. But here's what I want to talk about. What do you think it means when Paul prays this? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What do you think Paul's talking about? And we'll wait this time for the microphones to get there to you. So raise your hand if you have a clue. It's um, the desires of our heart that um, our hearts will be to desire the things that God wants. Okay. What else? The eyes of your heart. I mean, have, did any of you wake up this morning, you talk to your wife or your husband or a co-worker? I'm just praying that the eyes of your heart are enlightened today. 
I think it's uh, transferring the knowledge from your mind to your heart that it's a part of your DNA. Okay. Okay. Um, my version of the Bible says the understanding, yeah. that you will have a greater understanding in your heart. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. The mind of your heart, the eyes of your heart. There's all these different translations and understandings. This is the, the NIV that I'm reading out of. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I, I know I'm not up on biology, but if I missed that class about eyes in your heart, maybe I was out that day. But, but what he's talking about is, is absolutely your understanding. Let's think about this deep within you, your motivations. The faculty of understanding that you have. Not, not just the thoughts that are in your head, but, but it's sort of the modern thing of I love you with all of my heart. What does that mean? It's, it's the same truth. It's the motivation. That inner being of, of who we are. And he says, I, I pray that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that, that they would be enlightened. Why? Because they're, they're dulled. That's what sin does to us. It dulls us. Yeah. I have the um, New Living Translation, and I love the way that it says it. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future. Absolutely. And normally you don't understand with your heart. Mm. You understand with your mind. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Does anybody remember that song we used to sing years ago, Open the Eyes of My Heart? That chorus, the declaration, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Not just to know you, to see you, experience you. And it's a prayer that Paul is praying. and It's a, it's a prayer that I'm praying for you tonight. I'm praying for me tonight. That, that God would open up the eyes of our hearts. That we would be enlightened to understand who he is. And what he's doing. And... I've got you turning a lot of places. Forgive me for this, but 2 Kings is one of the greatest examples of this in all of Scripture. I want you to at least be able to see it with your own eyes. 2 Kings chapter 6. Yeah. If in the NIV, Zondervan edition. Yeah. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. There's this really cool guy named Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. And Elisha is in a little bit of trouble. Um, He's saying exactly what God wants him to say. The problem is nobody wants to hear it. So he's in trouble. He is surrounded by horses and chariots and a strong force. And it's just Elisha and his servant. In 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, that is Elisha, got up and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And he's scared to death. And he says, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Elisha walks out. Don't be afraid. The prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do you remember what I just told you a few seconds ago? It's just Elisha and his servant. Just the two of them. And there's this whole entire army surrounding them, strong force. The servant's scared to death, but Elisha says, don't worry, don't worry. Those who are with us are more numerous, I don't know, more powerful, I don't know, than those who are with them. Verse 17, and Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. 
Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, the servant was just focused on his circumstance. He didn't have the eyes of faith to see until the prophet prayed and his eyes were opened, enlightened to the spiritual realities that were all around him. And no longer did he have to be overwhelmed by his circumstances. No longer did he have to be afraid just because of what he saw by sight. He was able to see with spiritual understanding, able to see through the spirit of wisdom and revelation that those who were with him were more powerful and more numerous than the force that was against them. So this is Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may. And he gives three things. Three things, three prayers specific that he's praying. I hope these three things happen. I hope these three things are known. Number one is this. I I pray that you know the hope to which you have been called. The hope to which you have been called. Paul's deep prayer is that the the church at Ephesus, that that us today as we're reading this, that we would know the hope to which we've been called. He's basically referring to what has been mentioned in verses 1 through 14, the inheritance, the the promises of God. And here's what he's saying. These promises are real. These promises are true. Salvation, it's done. But Paul says, I hope you would experience the hope of his calling, what it means to allow those truths, those promises to be fulfilled in your life as you live every day. Not just on Sunday when you come to worship, but on Monday when you go to work, that you know the hope of his calling, that you know what the implications of your faith are, not just for your spiritual life, for all of your life. That you would understand the benefits of salvation that really are beyond the human mind's comprehension. So Paul prays, I, I pray that your eyes would be enlightened, that you would understand this, how great the hope that you have is, that no matter what circumstance I may find myself in right now, tonight, the fears that may go within me, the, the uncertainty about the future, that no matter the circumstances you find yourself in, that you would know the hope Of his calling. That in every situation. No matter how difficult it may be. You don't have to turn to despair. Because in Christ. There is hope. And his prayers that they would know the hope of his calling. Second. That you would know the riches. Of his glorious inheritance. Last week you discussed this idea of inheritance a little bit. In verse 11. It's found in verse 14. It's found. But but he's saying. I pray that you know the riches of his inheritance. I pray you know the glory of God. I pray you know. Here's, here's a good word. The value. The value. That, that first of all. You are valued. Like Psalm 139 says. That, that you. Every one of you. All of us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We are valued because we have been created in the image of God. God wants you to know how valuable you are to Him. How valuable and and how much He cares for you. You are a treasured possession to Him. He wants you to know that. But He also wants you to begin to value the things that He values. To prioritize, to organize your life. Around the things that He's valued. That truly are of eternal value. And verse 19 says, in his incomparably great power for us who believe. And and the third thing is this. He wants us to know his power. 
His power for us who believe. So this, this word power, uh, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight as we talk. Uh, but I just want us to, to stop here and just think about this idea of power. Just without even reading the rest of the verses. What do you think, what are the implications of the power of God? What do you think is the power of God? So just by, a, by maybe you can guess at it, I don't care. Knowledge of other verses in scripture. When I say the power of God, what comes to your mind when you start to think about that? Miracles, creation, if you guys want to raise your hand, they can get to you. There's a couple. Keep thinking about it. The power of God. What what does that look like? Miracles, creation, absolutely. What else? Infinite wisdom. Yeah. I always think of uh, when uh, Job is questioning God and he says, who are you that I laid out the the, uh, earth basically in the heavens and told the water where to stop. Absolutely. Who are you to question me? I am God and, and you are not, Job. Absolutely. What else? The power of God, yeah. The all-knowing. Say it all-knowing. again. All-knowing, yeah. I think it would also mean all-powerful. He could do anything. We could go to Absolutely. the resurrection. Yeah. He was able to do a resurrection. Not Absolutely. everybody could do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's one behind you. Perfect love and justice. Perfect love and justice. Absolutely, yeah. How about the mind-bending concept of infinity or infinite? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of it as, you know, Satan and evil cannot touch me because I can draw on the power of the Lord and just say, get away. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are getting ready to, to see that, yeah, your answers are covered in the scriptures that we're getting ready to read. So this is... You guys are right on track. Here's what I want you to see in that verse before we start to explain all that. His incomparably great power, but, but here's what I want you to get first. For us who believe. For us who believe. This power that is available, this power that is at our disposal, you could say. For us who believe. So that word, believe. Anybody, a, a, an English teacher in here? It's a present active participle. Wow, can you believe that? It's amazing, isn't it? It's a present active participle. For us who believe, so this is, let's, let's just break that down. First of all, it's present. So it's talking about your belief now. Not something you did like me when I was six, seven years old, way back in the future, you believed then. No, no, it's now. For us who believe, for you who are believing now. It's active. It's present active participle. It's active meaning it's not passive. It's not sitting back saying, all right, God, do something. It's active. It's engaged, seeking, trusting, believing. The participle simply in English means the ing part. So it's it's not just belief. It is believing. For us who are believing. So it's not that you've said, yeah, I've got a relationship with God. Well, why do you have a relationship with God? Well, because I prayed a prayer back then. That's that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about because you're trusting today. You're believing today. You're hoping and expecting him now in this moment that you're in. For us who believe, there is power available to us to believe. A great power to live the life that God wants us to live. And so Paul's concerned for the believers, listen, who don't feel the power of God. 
He's concerned and he's praying for these Ephesians. He's concerned and he's praying probably for us in the future because he's afraid that some of us may feel, Mike, there's a hand up there. Some of us may feel defeated, weak, not able. And he wants us to know the power for us who believe. Yeah. Kind of going back to what you started with, with you know, the 73% of people not feeling that they felt God. Sure. When you, when you say that word power, I think in a lot of people it invokes like this, like you're saying, like infinite, you know, grand things. Do you think people miss, like to me, most of the time I feel God is in very small moments. Like hmm. when something was going terribly wrong and it's suddenly gone right for no apparent reason. Do you think people are just looking for something too grand because they're kind of swept up in this idea of the power Great of God? Great question. Great question. Yeah. I mean, I think the reality of Scripture tells us when we are weak, then we're strong in Christ. His, his strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's power. That's, that's godly power. Although it may not be... None of you may be able to see it at work in each other's life or in my life. That moment when we are weak... But his grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect. And, and that's his, his mighty power, yeah. It's absolutely that as well. I wouldn't say as opposed to, but in addition to, yeah. Yeah, one other thing, just because he mentioned power, and I always think of El Shaddai or when he first represented himself as I am to Abraham. Yeah. And he says, uh, or El Shaddai to Abraham, he he's, follows by a bunch of I will. So his power is to do his will. Yeah. Whatever he wants to do, oftentimes we say, well, he's, he's not doing what I want, therefore maybe he's not as powerful as I had right. hoped, but that's not it. It's right. to do his will. Absolutely, yeah. His will, his way, his timetable, yeah, that, that he's God and he's control. And, and he says this same power, um, he's concerned about it because maybe it's not active in believers' lives. So what is he going to do about it? What what are we to do tonight if we say, I'm weak? I'm not experiencing the power that that, that the Scripture's talking about tonight. Well, this is what Paul's doing about it. He's praying for them. He's praying that they understand, that they experience, and that they be filled with the power. So it's, it's not some mystical formula we're talking about tonight. It's this simple. If you realize your weakness... Admit it and pray for God's strength. That's what Paul's doing now. He's praying that they would be strong. um, Praying that they would understand. So let's read verse 19 um, in in its entirety. I sort of split it up. Um, So the the three things are basically know the hope to which he's been called, the riches of his inheritance, the power for us who believe. Now he describes that uh, power in the middle of 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now I just read a lot of scripture right there in a row, right? All of that, all of those scriptures, those are the implication of the third point 
of his power. The implication is knowing not just the hope, the riches, but the power. The, the rest of the verses that we just read, those are all implications of the power. Those are all things that, that, that are ways to measure the greatness of God's power towards those who believe. And in summary, those verses that I just read can be summarized in five ways. So if you're one who's taking notes, you can write these down. These are five ways to measure the greatness of God's power now towards those who believe. And it's just straight through uh, verses 19 through 23. The first is this. God raised Jesus and he broke the power of death. Middle of verse 19, he says, um, well, verse 20, I'm sorry. Um, It's the power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That God raised Jesus and broke the power of death. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for us that that God raised Jesus and he broke the power of death? The the reality is this. There's the word I want you to get. A phrase. Resurrection power now. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. Resurrection power now. So that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The point here is that In Jesus Christ, the power of death is broken. The enemy, death, is defeated. Because Christ has been raised, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. He's broken the power. There's someone in the back. That's a question. Broken the power of death, hell, and the grave. So what does that mean for us? It means if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear the death of a loved one who is a follower of Christ because Christ has broken that power. Yeah. Pastor Aaron, isn't this is referring to, is it in Romans where it says, the same spirit lives in you that raised Christ from the dead? Absolutely. And yes. that's a lot of power that we don't even Absolutely. scratch the surface of. Absolutely. Resurrection power now. It means that death, death is not defeat for the believer. Death is not the end. It's not a losing effort for the believer. Yeah. It's the infinite power of eternal life. Absolutely. In Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Is that God's greatest power that he raised God, raised Jesus from the dead? And why? Because Jesus raised people from the dead. Great question. Probably the, the, the easiest answer I would say to the Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead is guess what? Lazarus died again. He wasn't raised to eternal life. He was raised and then he died later. Resurrection power is raised to life, never to die again. And, and, and not just in the physical sense of we lose our life, in the spiritual sense of that was just spoken of, that we're raised to live eternally. We'll get to that in just a moment because that's another one of the five points here. But absolutely, that's what he's talking about. Power to live eternally, a resurrected life. It's, it's, it's for us, resurrection power now. Number two, God seated Jesus at his right hand and we have been set there with him. That is in the middle of verse 20. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The power that took Jesus from death and put him eternally, eternally in God's presence put you there too. And by the way, as you talked about last week, keeps you there. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of salvation. And so he seated him in the, the heavenly place at the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures tell us that we too have been seated there. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and title that can be given. So number three is this idea. 
God sets Jesus over all demonic powers. God sets Jesus over all demonic powers. Uh, this last little bit I, I stole from this, this great theologian named John Piper. So I'm just going to read what he said because he says it a lot better than I say it. Um, so number three, God sets Jesus over all demonic powers. The power toward you now, that the power of God in you now, listen, this is what he said, is a devil-defeating power. A devil-defeating power. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was exalted all over all the hosts of hell. They are a defeated foe. They are not yet out of the world, and battles are yet to be fought. But the power from God for us now in these battles is a resurrection power now to live and to die for the glory of Christ. So somebody mentioned this earlier, and they said, if there's opposition, if there's spiritual warfare, that, that we can stand strong in Jesus Christ and say, in Jesus' name, by faith in him, I'm going to pray, I'm going to trust, and I'm going to know that no weapon formed against me can prosper. So what we are told here in Ephesians is just ammunition for that to say that Jesus has been exalted above all the... This fan is about to destroy my pages. There, now I can actually hold my Bible open. That the... um far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that we don't have to be afraid of spiritual warfare. Although it is real, and the Bible talks about there is good versus evil. There are devils and demons and those kind of things, but we don't have to fear because in Christ we have a power, like John Piper said, a devil-defeating power. We have been given victory. The Scriptures tell us. And we can live in this victory and this resurrection power now means we don't have to live in fear. We can live by faith because we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. A devil defeating power. We don't have to be afraid of the warfare. Number four, God gave Jesus to be head over all things. This is implying authority and conscious active rule. Now, this is John Piper again, so I'm reading him. Let me read that first part again. We have been given authority and, and conscious rule, and here's his list of things, over history, human beings, over, over demonic powers, over disease, disability, all nature, including weather, hurricanes, lightning bolts, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, food, floods, global warming. Okay, this is John Piper. So he, what he does is he gets practical and he always takes everything to the utmost practicality. So this is, this is interesting. This is just how Jesus is head over everything. All those things he just mentioned, but now listen to what he says. Over business and industry, healthcare, sports, March Madness, inventions, media, internet, iPad mania, military might, governments, presidents, kings, chief, religion, universities, solar systems, stars, galaxies, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, 10,000 things no man has yet discovered. Jesus is head over them all. He is the ruler. Do you understand what, what that means? One theologian said there's not one ounce, one iota of anything that Jesus does not claim mine. He's the authority, the ruler. What that means is he's in control. And we can trust him and know that if we are in him and he is ours, the promises that he gives us 
our resurrection power now promises. No matter what we face, no matter what comes against us, that He is God. Fifthly, it's this. Where God rules, we rule. Verse 22 of Ephesians 1, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Where God rules, we rule. Once again, John Piper's description. I'm not sure I can express this, he says, but I'll try. God's power towards us intends to fill the universe with the authority of his crucified, risen son. And though it takes your breath away, he intends to make us the church, those who believe, the means of that fullness, the embodiment of that fullness. That is where he rules, we will rule. Remember in the garden when God gave Adam the commission? To tend and take care of his creation. He put him in charge as the authority over creation. That charge was not dropped with the fall. And we've still been given that kind of charge to, to allow the work of Christ to permeate every ounce of our society and our culture. And these five things that are given here by Paul as a list of God's resurrection power now, God's power at work in our life, in every aspect of our life, in every area of our life, that God's power at work now, that we could be able to live in it. But based on those eight verses that we just read, is there anything in there that, that you see in those eight verses that would explain why we don't live in the power he has for us? As you look back over those eight verses and you, and you say, well, what, what could be the problem? Why are we not living in the power that he promises for us? Why is it there's so many anemic Christians who don't seem to have the strength to have victory. Because the eyes of our hearts don't understand. Absolutely. That's it. I, I think that's it. I think that's what he says in this passage. Is It's a perception problem. It really, it's a faith problem. That we don't fully believe. We don't fully understand. And so it's not a call for you to get stronger. It's not a call for you to learn more in your head. It's a call to trust Him completely. It's a call to come to Christ and believe again. It's a a call to pray and beg God to give you the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, to reveal to you the promises that are yours in Christ. Not to say, I'm going to pull myself up by my, by my bootstraps. I'm going, to, I'm going to make this happen by dogged determinism. I'm going to make it through this tough season. It's, it's no, no, no. Surrender and trust Christ fully. Trust in what he has done for you on a cross. Trust and know that he loves you completely just as you are. And his plan for you is a plan for hope. A plan for good and not for evil. A plan to give you a hope and a future. And when you feel weak, run back to Him. When you feel tired, go back to His power. Pray for His strength. Pray for the Holy Spirit of God to open up the eyes of your heart, to enlighten you. To let you see. So we're just going to take a moment and pray. And, and if that's you. Uh, you say. I, I, I'm just weak right now. 
My faith is weak. My faith is worn down. I've been running on my own. I've been trying to do life in my own strength for so long now. And tonight, I'm just tired. I'm going to ask you just just there at your seat to pray a a private prayer just between you and God. If, If we could, let's just close our eyes. And is there anyone here tonight that that I could pray for? And you would just acknowledge that that you want me to pray for you and just say, my faith is weak. My faith is tired. I've been trying to do this on my own. And, And Aaron, I want you to pray for me. Just slip your hand up if that's you. Lots of hands. God, you see the hands. Uh, More importantly, you know every single person. You know their heart. I thank you, God, that they're here tonight. I pray that they would receive this word. God, I pray over them. That you, God, would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know you better. I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened that they may know the hope to which you have called them, that they would know the riches of their glorious inheritance. They would know your incomparably great power for us who believe. And I pray that you would provide for them tonight that gift of faith to believe, to trust you. I pray that you would open up their eyes that they could see and know you. I pray tonight that you would fill us with your love Fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we acknowledge we cannot do this on our own. Help us, Lord. But God, as you begin to open up our eyes, and God, as you begin to fill us with your power, Lord, I pray expectantly for the the faith that will go forth out of this place, for the love that's going to take root in our hearts and begin to be shown toward each other and the people we come in contact with. God, I look forward expectantly to reports of, of people that have been here tonight that have received your word, that have acted on it, and you've empowered them to to face a difficult situation. You've empowered them to make it through another day when they're ready to give up. God, and I thank you for your power that is beyond our understanding, beyond our comprehension. And God, I pray right now, I pray for resurrection power now in our lives, God. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week and we'll see you guys soon.